0: Well, I assure you, nobody wanted to see Josiah up here more than myself. <laughs> and we started kind of going through the list of characters. And we go, okay, let's get Kempis. Let's get oh, no, he's on vacation. All right, let's, let's go to Tim Carnes then. No, no he's on vacation too. Um, who, who's left? <laughs> well, I guess we'll go to Brock. And so here I am. But I have the, the privilege of being able to open up the Word of God with you. Uh, this morning, I apologize for my attire. I came, obviously, expecting to teach children's church, much more uh, casual there, and so I, I'm sorry I don't have the tie, but to make me feel, uh, you know, at ease up here, if, if you guys could just kind of, like, like, maybe halfway through the message, just raise your hand to see if you can go to the bathroom. That would be, that would be great. I feel right at, I feel real comfortable right at home, and, and we'll be good to go. But it is good to be with you this morning, even though it's with such short notice, But uh, I pray that God will be able to work through his word and we'll be able to work through a broken vessel like myself. But let's go ahead and open up and ask the Lord to bless our time together. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for the time that you've given us together. And we do just pray that you will do a great work this morning. We pray for Josiah and we pray for quick healing with his voice, Lord, that you will restore him and just allow it not to be anything too serious. But I pray for a quick healing on him I pray right now that you will just speak through me, that you allow your word to go forth with great power, and that you will just do a work in all of us, Father, that we might be a people who exalt Christ and rejoice in how great a salvation we have. We hold our time up to you and just pray that you will bless it richly, and I ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, well, when we kind of think about life, and even an event like this, life doesn't always kind of go the way that we anticipate it. It doesn't always work out um, the way that we would like it to. So sometimes we, we deal with all kinds of things that we don't expect, or we have great expectations on something and it doesn't quite work out the way that we think it should. And, you know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I know it's happened to me. I mean, have you ever had something start off really good? Only to have it end up really bad. I mean, I mean you're, you're starting at this thing and you're thinking, man, this is like the Mount Everest of life. This is a great thing. I can't wait to see how all of this pans out and it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be great only to kind of find yourself, you know, down the road in Death Valley just wondering how in the world did I go from Everest into Death Valley here? How did, how did that end up like that? I mean, for some of us it might have been a, a dating relationship that began with great promise but ended in a pile of ruins For some of us, it might have been a job that looked like it had great potential, all kinds of upside to it, only to find out that it uh, led us into a dead end. For others, it might have been friendships, marriages, children, living arrangements, vacation plans. The list could go on and on ad infinitum. Speaking of vacation plans, um, recently I just came back from vacation on, uh, on Friday, but while we were away on vacation, one of the things that happened is we, we took a, a little hiking trip and, uh, you know, it's a trail that it said rigorous, but, you know, we figured, hey, we're the Boldy family. We can handle this, and we can we can handle rigorous, and so we start off, and, and we, we start going, and, and we're getting there, and you know, we've got a later start in the day, and, and it's just taking a lot longer than we anticipated, and so we're kind of going, but we're enjoying it. We're making the most of so it. We start kind of getting into this really cool area where there's, like, snow, and there's no footprints on it. We're, like, the only ones that crazy enough to been up here and, and exploring in, the, in this type of area, and, and so we're 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 kind of going higher, and all of this is to lead us in the end to these falls um, that are supposed to be beautiful, and we're trusting because of the time of season it is, and the snowfall that was there that'd be beautiful, and we're we're, we're just rejoicing and trying to get up there. And so we're we're working our way there, but the snow's getting deeper, and daylight's getting less, and we decide to turn back around, and, and we come across this little path that leads us back to the road, and we figure, you know what, it's dark, it's getting darker, we don't want to get stuck out here in, in the nighttime and, and be stuck here, so what we'll do is we'll just drop down this little path to the road, and then we'll be able to kind of just get back to our car from there. And, you know, it seemed like a good plan at the time, but as we, as we went down, we just had no idea how far we were from our car, where we spit out from on the path. Uh, it was the right, it was the right choice, but it's kind of one of those things. We were having this great time. We were up in the snow where, you know, there, there just wasn't a whole lot of activity and no distractions, no other people kind of roaming around, just enjoying God's beautiful creation. And then we kind of come down onto this road and we wander for like hours just trying to get back to our car. I think all in all, not, not just the road trip, but all in all, it was like about an 11 mile hike. And the last four of that probably being down on this road. And, uh, you know, but God was good. And, and, you know, it was one of those things where it started off great. And there was a great anticipation, great excitement, only to find ourselves kind of in this, in this valley. And, and without question, we all have things in our lives that have begun well, only to find them finishing poorly. Things that at one point in time brought us great happiness, but have since left us saddened, hurt. Or maybe even confused at things. And, and, and really, this kind of comes back to the fall, does it not, brothers and sisters? I mean, ever since the fall of man, this has been true for all of mankind. I mean, think back to the time shortly after Adam and Eve uh, were, were kicked out of the garden. You know, it was a, it was a time in which they started to reproduce and, and to multiply. And, and, and I want you to just try to imagine the awe and, and the wonder of this first couple as they watched their first son, Cain, come into this world think about all the excitement all the all the promise think about all the all the emotion that would have been wrapped up in this event all of the excitement and the potential that would have been wrapped up in that birth but then couple that with the death blow of Cain murdering Abel i mean one can only imagine the anguish that was brought on by this event but you know what we live in a fallen world do we not Things don't always work the way that we would like them to. Things don't always pan out the way that we would anticipate them to. Um, we, we have great expectations, but they don't always come about, and therefore we're left in sorrow, and we're, we're, forced, we're forced to deal with circumstances that we would rather not deal with. Yes, we, we live in a world in which our circumstances and the emotions that couple those circumstances... Kind of come and, and, and go. There's, there's highs and there's lows, and, and again, I think we, we can all resonate with that. We can all experience that. We can all uh, acknowledge that. I mean, one minute everything's up and the, and the next it's, it's down. One minute we have our health, and then the next minute we're lying flat on our backs in a hospital bed with no clue as to when we're going to get home or if we're ever going to be able to get better. One minute we're being told how invaluable we are to a company, and then the next minute we find ourselves unemployed, wondering how in the world are we going to provide for our family? How are things going to possibly work out? One minute our car is running great. The next minute it's in the shop needing more work done to it than it's actually worth. And all of these things just, just wreak havoc with us. Don't they? I mean, they, they make us feel like we're on one of those crazy roller coasters at, at Magic Mountain. You know what I mean? The kind that aren't even fun, right? The kind that you, you're you just going, going all over the place, and, and, and the only fun part is when you actually stop and you get your feet back on the ground. And if you're like me, you kiss the ground and just say, I'm never going on that ride again. But life can kind of be like that. And as a result, many of us find ourselves, we find ourselves worn out and, and depressed. And, and like the world, we start to We start to to live as those who are without hope, those who are without joy. But I assure you, brothers and sisters, that this is not how Christ wants things to be for us. This is not what we were created for. Jesus Christ didn't come into this world, live a perfect life, offer that perfect life up, get hung up on a cross and then buried in a tomb and then rise three days later and then eventually ascend into heaven so that you and I could walk around depressed and in a bunch of gloom and and doom. He didn't do all that he did so that you and I could live like the rest of the world. And nowhere is this more clearly explained than in the the book of Philippians as we understand what the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to do because it's here that, that Paul makes clear his joy in an attempt to encourage the Philippians and us to demonstrate ours. Right? Because God has called us to something more. In Philippians 1, 3-4, he writes this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In Philippians 1, he says this, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. In Philippians two seventeen through 18, he pens these words. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. All of these verses lead us up to the text that we're going to be looking at today. So if you haven't already opened up your Bibles, go ahead and open them with me to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, you see there is a key command that we see right at the very beginning of our text that must not be brushed by or overlooked or not adhered to because really the entire uh, rest of the text is built upon it. If you miss this first command and you miss the thrust of what Paul is attempting to teach these Philippian believers, and this command that is in the opening is found in in line 1, in verse 1, where it says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul is not simply asking them to rejoice in the Lord. No, this is a flat-out command. He is commanding them to rejoice in the Lord. Now, again, at first glance, this might seem a little odd. It might, it might seem like, you know... Uh, Somebody asking somebody to do something impossible. I mean, they might compare it to uh, telling a kid to eat their Brussels sprouts and saying, you know what, you're not going to only eat those Brussels sprouts, but you're going to like it. Right? I mean, it's kind of like this, that just seems like an odd command to rejoice in the midst of all these things. Now, again, if you're a parent, you understand a command like that. You're going to eat those Brussels sprouts and you're going to like it. But, you know, if you're the kid, you're kind of sitting there going, what? I'm not going to like that. I'll eat it, maybe, but I'm not going to like it. But you know what? Anyone who struggles with Paul commanding believers to rejoice does not have a a proper understanding of what true joy really is. Too many people confuse happiness with joy. We get all caught up on the world's definition of of happiness, and we want to kind of bring that over into joy. I mean, to be happy is kind of this emotional response to where, you know, I just feel a certain way. Right? And generally, my happiness is tied to my circumstances, and and it's not so much that, you know, I'm thinking about anything other than I'm experiencing something, and, and this emotion generates this happiness in me. But again, happiness and joy are really not the same. Joy is not tied to our circumstance. See, the world searches and longs for happiness, and occasionally it gets it, but apart from Christ, it will never find true joy. And when Paul speaks of joy, he's talking about more than our moods or more than our emotions. He's referring to our need to delight in God. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and in Children's Church, I've been going through the fruit of the Spirit, just reminding these children the importance of of demonstrating this fruit of the Spirit, right? I mean, an apple tree produces apples. An orange tree produces oranges. A lemon tree produces lemons. A Christian produces the fruit of the Spirit. And joy is one of them. If we have God's Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, then this will be something that will come out. It will demonstrate itself in our lives. And and one of the fruits of the Spirit is, is joy. And yet... Many Christians fail to manifest this joy in in their lives. They become so preoccupied, so concerned, so worried with the things of this world that they fail to delight in Christ. They fail to demonstrate and to express true joy. I'd be willing to say that it's happened to most of us. I mean, I can attest that it's happened to me. I mean, I remember when I first got saved, there was a true joy in the Lord. I mean, I was eager. I was delighting in God's Word. I was delighting in, in times of prayer. I was delighting in being around other believers just so they could talk about the things of God. There was a, a hunger and a passion and a, and a joy that was, that was there. But I can also remember a time after my salvation where I wasn't delighting in God, and it was a, it was a darker time. It was a harder time. There was a, a true, genuine faith. I loved God, but there was just the weight of life, the weight of things not working out the way that I would have hoped them to, and, and just kind of feeling this, this burden and, and kind of allowing that to kind of take my focus away. And as a result, I didn't delight in God's Word. I didn't long to be in God's Word. I didn't delight in, in time and in prayer. I didn't delight in being a, around other believers. In fact, it was kind of draining because it just weren't in the same place that I was, I was in. You know, it's a time in which I, I think I, I lost my joy. Now, I don't know if anyone else had noticed that I had lost it. I don't know if I was radically different in my dealings with other people. But I certainly know that I had lost my joy. And mo- more importantly, God certainly did. This, this world that we live in is, is hard. Life is hard. It's it's difficult. It's it's hard to get out there in the in the midst of a, a crooked and perverse generation but whereby we're to appear as as light in the world. And if we're not careful, we can we can let our circumstances rob us of the joy that is ours in Christ. If we don't have a right thinking of what joy truly is, and we and we don't control um our thinking and, and we get caught up in our circumstances and those things going on around us, you and I can very easily find our joy being zapped and losing out on a great blessing that is to be ours in Christ. I mean, if anyone knew how hard this world was, it had to be the Apostle Paul. I mean, if, if anyone had good reason to lose his joy, surely it was it was him. And I mean, on top of writing this letter to the Philippians from jail in, in Rome, being imprisoned in Rome, Paul had also endured such hardships as this, being stoned and dragged out of the city of Lystra and left for dead according to Acts fourteen, nineteen through twenty. Of being beaten and thrown into a prison cell in Philippi, according to Acts sixteen, eleven through forty of being savagely beaten in Jerusalem, Acts 21, 27 through 32. And and these are just a few of the things that he had to endure. These brothers and sisters are are not happy things, right? These are not the kind of things that, that put a smile on your face. These aren't the types of things that you say, yes, this is awesome, may I have another? Right, these are tough things. And yet Paul in the midst of having gone through all of these tough things, remains joyful. I mean, just despite his circumstances, Paul manages to keep his eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of his faith. And in doing so, Paul, Paul gives both the Philippians and us an accurate picture of what it means to rejoice in the Lord. But not wanting to stop there, Paul goes on to offer some practical instructions. And so wrapped within the confines of Philippians 3, 1 through 3, are three essential actions for being able to rejoice in the Lord. Three essential actions for being able to rejoice in the Lord. And when these three actions are properly implemented, they will do much to help us to delight in our glorious God and Savior. Now the first action that is essential to your rejoicing in the Lord is Being mindful. Being mindful. Follow along with me as we read the entirety of verse 1. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Ask any teacher, and they will tell you that repetition and reinforcement are essential to a student's learning. This is teaching 101. You just have to continue to repeat and go over things over and over again, and if people are going to truly learn a subject matter or a particular skill, they need to go over it time and time again, okay? And, and here's how I like to, to refer to this. You know, you and I, we're, we're leaky, right? We're, we're just, we just leak, right? We get information in and it kind of just leaks out of us. And, and so if we're not constantly being reminded of certain truths, it's real easy for us to forget about some of those truths and let other things crowd our thinking and take away the joy that is to be ours in, in Christ. But repetition and going over things time and time again is a way that we can uh, get over that. I mean, true mastery doesn't take place without repetition. You know, the only, the only smart thing I did when I was in junior high and high school was I, I took typing. And, and typing was probably the only smart thing I ever did. Um, but, you know, it, it ended up kind of being one of those things that in typing class, and yes, this was back in the day. We didn't have computer screens. We actually had the electric typewriter. So we were we were ahead of the older generation who had the manual typewriters. We actually had the electric ones. And, you know, the, the main thing that we, we learned was to keep our fingers on the, the home row. And the, the home row, was that was safe. And, you know, you just kind of kept your fingers there on home row. And, you know... You just kind of practice typing your letters. After a couple of weeks, we begin to venture off of the home row. And it got a little, I'll, I'll confess, it got a little scary coming off of the home row. You because know, the home row is your, your comfort zone. And that's kind of where you're at. And it's kind of where you want to stay. But then you got to start kind of reaching off of that home row. And you got to start kind of reaching for other keys. And there's some keys that you got to reach really far. Like you start trying to reach for some of those numbers. Oh, man, that's crazy. All right, and so you start typing, and but lo and behold, you know, you stick with it. You start at the home row. You start branching off. You start doing little things to stretch yourself here and there. And before long, you actually type a word. It's an amazing thing. You you actually type a word, and you can look at it, and it makes sense, and it's a word that you typed. And then after a little while, you start actually being able to type sentences. And then after a little while, you start being able to type paragraphs, and then you can type papers and all kinds of wonderful things, sermons, all kinds of stuff. And again, all of this didn't just happen, right? It it, it all flowed out of repetition, of starting with the basics and kind of building from there and and just going over it time and time again. And it's the same thing with anything that you learn, right? I mean, whether you, you play a sport, an instrument, I mean, you don't just kind of pick up a golf club, take one swing and say, okay, I've got it mastered. I don't have anything more to learn. Or an instrument, play one note and just say, okay, I'm done, I'm good. Right? I mean, it takes repetition. So this is teaching 101. We need to be mindful. We need to kind of keep these things before us. We need to keep these truths before us. And repetition helps us to learn. And Paul understood this. Paul understood this concept. That's why it wasn't a problem for him to write the same things again. But what was it that he was making it a point to rewrite? Did it have to do with uh, potential dissensions within the church? Did it concern the Judaizers? Was it simply the call to rejoice? And, and really, you know, depending on who you look at, commentators are, are all over the board as to exactly what this phrase is retur- referring to. But, but whether it's pointing ahead to the next verse or looking back to the command to, to rejoice makes little difference. The concept is the same regardless We must be mindful. We must be mindful. There is a basic need for us to be reminded, even of what we already know. You know, and if you have children, you get this, right? I mean, you get this. If you have kids, uh, you're familiar with this concept. I mean, how many times have you had to tell your children to be kind to one another? How many times have you had to discipline your children because they have chosen not to be kind to one another? How many of you have had to discipline your children multiple times because they continue to not be kind to one another even after you're disciplining them? I mean, this is a concept that we need to continue to bring the truth to bear. But, you know, children are not the only ones who need to be reminded. Sorry, you and I are too. Remember, we're leaky, right? We forget. We move on from things and we kind of forget certain truths even when they're brought right before our face. I mean, how many times have you read a passage like James 1:20 where it says for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God how many times have you forgotten that verse in a fit of selfish rage or let's bring it back to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you how many times have you heard that verse and yet how many of you struggle with being Kind and tender-hearted? How many of you struggle with being forgiving to somebody who's done something really bad to you and had an attitude while they did it? We are a people, brothers and sisters, who need to be reminded. It doesn't matter how many times you've heard the truths of this book. You need to hear them again. These truths need to occupy your mind to such a degree that they simply flow out of your life. You need to be constantly filling your mind with the truth of God's Word so that it flows out of your life. And if you and I are to rejoice in the Lord, then we must be ever mindful of who Christ is and who we become when we put our faith in Him. This is something that never changes. We don't ever get beyond this. This is something that is not dependent upon our circumstances. This is something that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from, according to Romans 8, 38 and 39. Because it's all of God. I mean, just just let your mind dwell on these things. Let your mind be filled with the awe and wonder of Jesus Christ. Be reminded again and again of all that Christ has done for you in your rebellion, in your sinfulness. Think about all that he has done for you. Think about his patience, his kindness to draw you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Think about that. And then rejoice. Rejoice at how great a salvation you have. Rejoice at the fact that you are a child of God, that you are no longer in that kingdom of darkness, but you are in the kingdom of his beloved son. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. So having established our need to be mindful, we're now ready to look at the second action that is essential to your rejoicing in the Lord, which is being watchful. Being watchful. Let's look at verse 2. It says this. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. You know, it's here that we find the Apostle Paul going after those who were seeking to mislead the Philippians like a, a, a mama bear kind of watching over her, her cubs from danger, Paul goes on the attack and he, and he launches this, this tirade of, of stinging accusations against a group of, of, of people that is, that is often referred to as the Judaizers. And in no uncertain terms, Paul makes it perfectly clear to the Philippians that they need to be on guard. The foe that they are up against is dangerous, and this foe, this dangerous foe, is, is capable of doing great harm to them. In essence, they are a group that is attempting to promote a different gospel than the gospel that Paul was proclaiming and teaching them. I mean, the gospel that the Philistines had learned from the Apostle Paul is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. I mean, it was this great truth that, that pierced the heart of Luther. And thus spawned the Reformation. And and, and it was this truth that was to ignite the hearts of the, the Philippians. To remind them that it is by grace alone, through faith alone. I mean, any attempts at making salvation faith plus something, faith plus anything, is an abomination before the Lord. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. See, this is exactly what the Judaizers were doing. They were attempting to add to the gospel. They were attempting to bring in their Jewish customs and traditions upon these Gentile believers. They were trying to advocate a different gospel, so Paul warns the Philippians. He he gives them the the big warning. He puts them on the alert. He says, beware, Philippians. These guys are bad news. They're dogs. They're they're evil workers. They're they're mutilators. Now, the terms that Paul uses to describe these Judaizers are are indeed, they're they're very sharp. They're, They're very severe. They're very harsh. And yet, They are words that were meant to help the Philippians to continue to rejoice in the Lord. So as sharp as these words are, as severe as they are, they're coming to the Philippians in an effort to help them to continue to rejoice in who they are in Christ by warning them about the danger that they were in. Paul calls these Judaizers dogs because this described their character. Now, again, don't, don't confuse this label with that little domesticated animal that you have running around in your backyard or that little chihuahua you put in a little sweater or something like that, right? That's not what we're talking about here. not talking about some kind of domesticated pet. He's talking about the kind of dogs that roamed around in packs, that, that the kind that posed danger to anyone or, or anything that came up against them. This wasn't your your little domesticated uh, pet. It's rather ironic that Paul uses the term, though, um, of the Judaizers, warning them as as being dogs, because dogs was a term that that was often used by the Jews to describe the Gentiles. It was meant to show how the the Gentiles were, in essence, unclean and, and unholy, and thus outside of the covenantal promises of God. But now, because of Christ... Paul is, is, is telling the, the Philippians that these Judaizers are now the dogs, right? That, that these are the ones who are outside looking in, that these are the, the outcasts, the scavengers, the, the unholy. Paul goes on to call these Judaizers evil workers because this depicted their conduct. This was a a group that worked hard to promote their their false gospel. They went around creating schisms and splits within the body of Christ. They they sought to lead as many people astray as they could. They weren't concerned with leading people to Christ. No, they were were more concerned with adding to their numbers, of growing their, their, their camp so that they could make more false disciples. They were just like the hypocritical Pharisees. That Jesus speaks about in Matthew twenty three fifteen, who traveled around on sea and land just to make one proselyte, one convert, somebody just like them. The third and final name that Paul calls these Judaizers is the false circumcision or, or mutilators, because this defined their creed. Using the Greek language in a way that you know we just don't get by looking at the English language, but it shows up in the Greek, Paul makes a little play on words. The word for circumcision in the Greek is peritome, and it means to cut around but not wanting to associate what these Judaizers were doing with the, the real circumcision. Paul refers to their handiwork as katatome, which means to cut to pieces, or to put it another way, to mutilate. So again, circumcision was was one of the customs that these Judaizers were attempting to force upon these Gentile believers. They're saying, look, okay, you want to be a Christian? Great, put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you also need to practice this. You also need to practice circumcision because that is the only way you're going to be right with God. Sure, faith is necessary, but you need to do more than that. You need to do this. You need to get circumcised. Then you'll be like us, and then you'll be right with God, and then it'll be just fine. In essence, they were saying Again, if you really wanted to be saved, you needed to trust in Christ and your circumcision. Again, you need to be like us. I mean, you can almost hear Paul shouting, No! Beloved brothers and sisters, no! That is not the gospel that I preach to you. That is not how you are saved. Circumcision is not the thing that is going to save you. Remember, it's by grace alone through faith alone. Circumcision was a sign of man's faith in God in the past, but that is no longer the case on this side of the cross. That is not something that was required of God's people, this side of the cross. In Colossians two ten through 11 Paul writes this, he says, "...and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You see, to impose circumcision on the Gentile believers was was not circumcision at all. It was mutilation. Because it did nothing to improve that person's standing with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God no longer commanded it. It wasn't necessary. You could do it or not do it, but it wasn't necessary for salvation. You see, when a person places their faith in the, person, in the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ, there is no longer the need for an external, an external mark on the body because God puts an internal mark on the heart. It is a supernatural work that cannot be performed by human hands because, brothers and sisters, it is of God. Paul's warnings need to shout as loud to us today as they did back then to the Philippians. While the Judaizers may not be the force they once were, their kind is still alive and well, I assure you of that. There are still those who would want to impose their standards upon us. The Judaizers have been replaced in our culture by the legalists. Those who want to thrust their man-made standards or personal convictions upon everyone else. Those who would want us to believe that there is something more to our being put into a right standing with God than faith alone. They want to say you have to do this, otherwise you're not right with God. Yes, you have to have faith, but you have to have faith and, and that's where the danger comes. I assure you there is nothing that will zap your joy away quicker than putting yourself under legalism's heavy load. Nothing will make you forget the day when Jesus came into your life and remove the burdens of, the, of your sin faster than legalism. So beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Be, beware of the distorters. If you are to rejoice in the Lord, then you must be on guard. You must let the Word of God speak for itself. And you must guard against those who would attempt to teach anything contrary to that which is found in this book. Thus far in our endeavor to adhere to the Apostle Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord, we've seen the importance of being mindful and being watchful. We're now ready to look at the third action that is essential to your rejoicing in the Lord, which is being truthful, being truthful. Follow along as we look at verses, at verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It is here that uh, Paul lets us know the, the makeup of a true believer because only a true believer can rejoice in the Lord. Having just revealed the counterfeit faith of the Judaizers, Paul now seeks to reveal the character of those who have been circumcised in the heart. And as we will see, it is a a radically different picture from that of the Judaizers. He begins by stating that that true believers worship in the Spirit of God. What Paul means here is that there is a, a true devotion to God. This devotion goes much deeper and much farther than just showing up to church every Sunday. Brothers and sisters, can I be honest with you? The church is full of people who show up on Sundays, and yet it pains me to say that the church is not full of those who worship in the Spirit of God. There are too many people in the church today who come out of duty. They come because it's just what they do. There's no real thought about coming and actually worshiping God. There's no thought about digging into God's Word and seeing what God has to say. There's a tolerance for the message. But there's no real desire to delight in what God is teaching them. They don't really love God. They don't live for Him throughout the rest of the week. They don't do anything to know Him more except show up on Sundays. But true believers have a God-given desire to to know God and to know Him more deeply and to serve God. You see, if the Spirit of God is, is residing in you, then you should hunger to know Him. There, there should be days in which you just burst out in song. And I'm not saying, you know, you gotta kinda just be out on the street singing, but you know, roll up your windows and, and just belt it out. Praise God for what He's done in your life and what He's continuing to do in you. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that just showing up here on Sunday is your, you know, your check mark to where, okay, I'm I'm good with God and, and God's good with me because, you know, after all I showed up on Sunday. I might have been a few minutes late, but, uh, you know, I, I got there. No, God is saying that if we are going to be true worshipers, we need to praise him. True believers love God, and they seek to walk in obedience to his will. They, they delight in it. I mean, listen to what John 14, 15 says. Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you some tough questions? And again, I'm asking them to myself as well, so don't feel like I'm trying to pick on anybody out there. But, you know, these are tough questions. Do you love God? I mean, do you seek to keep His commandments? Are His commandments burdensome to you, or, or are they a delight to you? Do you live in the presence of God every day? Or is Sunday the only time that your, your Bible gets cracked open? What are you doing the rest of the week? Where are your thoughts as soon as you, you get out of here? Where does your mind run to? Now, these are difficult questions, and yet they are questions that, that need to be asked. They are, they are questions that are essential to our rejoicing in the Lord because they are questions that will determine where you and I will spend in eternity. Joy awaits those who worship in the Spirit of God. See, joy awaits those who have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Joy belongs to those who praise God for the work that he has done through his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul continues to define a true believer by stating that a true believer glories in Christ Jesus. Another way of saying this might be that a true believer boasts in Christ Jesus. Right, he, he boasts, a true believer is proud to be associated with Jesus Christ. A true believer isn't ashamed of the gospel. A true believer is, is proud to proclaim that they are a follower of Jesus Christ. A true believer doesn't back down or cower at the thought of proclaiming Christ, no matter what the culture, no matter what anybody might think about them. Can I ask you some more tough questions? What are some of us afraid of? Why why are some of us so timid when it comes to proclaiming Christ? Do we think that other people have better answers to the tough questions than we do? I mean, if you think that's the case, then why don't you just ask people what they believe? Ask them how they think the world came into existence. Ask them to tell you what will happen to them when they die? I'll tell you what, you'll, you'll soon find out that, that they haven't got a clue or they're, they're so misguided and they've kind of created their own dynamic that they, they couldn't be farther from the truth. But you and I do have truth. And it's not just something we've made up, it's not just something that we feel, it's something that has been given to us by our holy and merciful and gracious God. We have the Bible. We have the very Word of God. And because of that, you and I know how the world came into existence. No matter what the the experts and the scientists want to tell us. The Bible also tells us what will happen to us when we die. And that if we're apart from Jesus Christ, if we haven't trusted in in the, the perfect work and person of Christ, you and I are on our way to hell. But if we have received this gracious gift, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, And we've received him as our Lord and Savior. The Bible says that we will spend an eternity with God in heaven. And get this, not just sweeping the streets. We'll be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We will be sons and daughters of the living God. Amazing. It's not something I made up. It's something that the word of God proclaims. It's laid out in God's word. And yet, you know, the world that doesn't have any, any answer that makes any sense, that you know, they, they, they think it does, but it's, it's foolishness. But then they'll turn around and they'll say that what the Christian believes is foolishness. I mean, listen to what 1 Corinthians one eighteen says. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen, brothers and sisters. I mean, the true believer, the one who has been saved from his sin, despite what the world around him may think, boasts in Jesus Christ. And he boasts in Jesus Christ because he realizes that his salvation is not by works, not by anything that he's done, lest any man should boast, but instead it is of grace, a gift from God. The true believer understands that this enormous gift that he has received And thus he seeks to to share it with anyone who will listen. He rejoices at at the great burden that has been removed from his back and he seeks to tell others how they can have that same burden removed from theirs. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is freedom. It's liberating. It's a gracious gift from our great God. We need to be proclaiming it. We need to be boasting in Christ, not ourselves, but in what he's done for us. Despite what others may think of you or say about you, we are a people that have good news. And as a result, God is calling us to boast about his son. Are you boasting? Or are you just kind of keeping it to yourself? This week, let me challenge us all to make it a point to ask God to give you the courage to boast about Christ to some of the unsaved people that you'll be coming in contact with, whether it's at your school, at your workplace, within your family. Ask God to give you the courage to boast about Christ to them. You see, there is is joy in proclaiming Christ. As we tell others about His goodness, We tell them about his grace. It helps us to remember how great a salvation we have. A final defining quality of a true believer is that he puts no confidence in the flesh. This is the point in which many seem to stumble. It is here that many get tripped up and thus they fail to come to that place of total dependence upon Christ. For some of you, you come from a long line of Christian believers. Others of you have gone to or are going to a a fine Christian college. Others of you have grown up in the church, and still others of you are actively involved in the church. But may I remind you that none of these things save you? May I be so bold as to tell you that you may have experienced each and every one of these things, these privileges, and yet still not be saved? For each of these things is fleshly, they are of man. If your confidence is in them, then your confidence is misplaced. It is the grace and work of Christ that reconciles us to God and nothing else. It is our faith in Christ that allows each of us to be put back into a right standing with our Heavenly Father. Our families cannot save us. Our schools cannot save us. Not even our churches can save us. They are simply means in which to lead us to the end which is Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no other. In John fourteen, six, Jesus said this I am the way and the truth and the life. No one get that. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, apart from Christ, there, there is no salvation. A true believer understands this, and thus he puts no confidence in the flesh. We must be completely and utterly dependent upon Christ. Otherwise, we are not a true believer. It is in Christ that we are saved. It is in Christ that we are sanctified. It is in Christ that we are justified. It is in Christ that we are redeemed. And it is in Christ that we will be glorified. This is our hope. And we look forward to that, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what our great God has done for us in Christ. You and I are to have absolutely no confidence in the flesh. First Corinthians 2 2, the great apostle Paul says this. He says, He determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, to trust in our own abilities, our own intelligence, our own resolve, our own goodness is one of the greatest dangers of mankind. And you know what? A true believer understands this. He understands that he brings nothing to the table. He understands that apart from Christ, he's lost, and he's without hope in the world. But our society, our society would want us to believe that man is is basically good, that the world is full of great humanitarians, in essence, that, that God would be unjustified to send a man to hell. Brothers and sisters, this is a lie. And it's a lie that is straight from the pit of hell and you and I need to flee from it as fast as we can. We must never, ever begin to entertain the idea that there is something inherently good in us that warrants our salvation. That, when we do that, is putting confidence in the flesh, a characteristic that does not belong to a true believer. You know, in this life that we live here on this earth, there are many highs and many lows. Many things that start off well and end up poorly. We see it all around us. Broken marriages, broken friendships, broken families, broken dreams, broken promises. It's the nature of the world that we live in. But can I remind you that if you are a Christian... That this world is not your home. You and I have a different home. We have a, a residence in heaven, and it should be there that we long to be. It is there that we will find true contentment. But until we get there, until God calls us home, or until our glorious Savior returns, we must find joy in the journey. We must find joy not in our circumstances, but in our Savior. And as we've learned this morning from the Apostle Paul, there are three essential actions that we must take if we are to rejoice in the Lord. We must be mindful. We must be watchful. And we must be truthful. May God help each of us to put these three actions into practice just that Christ might be exalted, that Christ alone would be given preeminence, so that Christ alone would be the glory and joy of each and every one of us. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, but if you need to talk to somebody about the message today or you just have a prayer request that's weighing heavy on you, we'll have some counselors off to the side and we would invite you to go and and talk with them. But let me close this in a word of prayer and then you will be dismissed to leave. But let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that we have much to rejoice in. Father, forgive us for those moments when we are leaky, when we forget the glories of the gospel. Forgive us for those moments where the things of this world weigh us down and take our thoughts away from where they should be. Father, forgive us for the times when we don't rejoice in all that you've done through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you will do a work in each and every one of us, that we might be a a body of believers that are just overflowing with joy, that this fruit of the Spirit would be evident in each and every one of us, and it would be a, a genuine joy, not some manufactured joy that comes and goes, but a genuine joy that is firmly grounded in the unwavering work of Christ. Father, just continue to change our hearts, continue to change us from the inside out. Help us to be a people that delight and exult in our glorious risen Savior. And I ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.